The 26th annual Zero Mental Health Symposium was hosted virtually for the first time this year, which means you can still register and access the content for the next six months. We owe a special thank you to our sponsors who made this event possible, including the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation, Public Health Institute of Oklahoma, the Oxley Foundation, and the Maxine and Jack Zero Family Foundation. Learn more or register at zerosymposium.org. Grief just is, and we can have our clients grasp that, and instead of trying to make it look a certain way or trying to understand, anticipate what it's gonna look like tomorrow, what if they land on the thought that grief just is? You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, you're going to hear the Grief Center's Joanna Micah speak at the Zero Mental Health Symposium about the impact that grief and trauma have on the brain. Close to 600 people attended this virtual breakout session during the Zero Mental Health Symposium to discover how unresolved trauma can impact the ability to grieve. And you'll also hear about the different strategies to help regulate a person who is stuck in a trauma response. I'm a huge fan of Joanna. She's been on the podcast before and she has helped me in my own personal grief. So I know you're going to like this one. Just one quick note, you can go to the show notes and download Joanna's PowerPoint for this podcast. And you can still register for the Zero Mental Health Symposium at zerosymposium.org and watch all of the keynote and breakout sessions from the virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium. Okay, let's get started. The Mental Health Download starts now. So what is grief? I think it's important to start our conversation here because we're going to be exploring how trauma does impact. Trauma and grief both impact our brain. And I wish that I could um, come up with, you know, brilliant definition of grief. But what I have found to be true is that um, grief is just really hard to come up with one definition. And part of that is because we all experience grief in our own unique way. But this is where I've landed and I think that it can be helpful to help our clients understand what grief is. So grief, the grief experience is just the emotions or reactions associated to a loss and it can be any type of loss that we go through can create a grief experience, not just death loss, but any any time that we lose someone or something significant in our life, then we can expect to have a grief reaction. It's also important to help our clients understand that grief is a natural response um, to a loss that leads to healing. And when it comes to grief, we're going to be asking our clients to move into a really painful, emotional, hard, you know, at times exhausting process that most of us would probably prefer to stay out of that pain. But when we can help our clients understand that by choosing to move into it, there's actually healing that happens. And I believe that every time we take something inside and we get it out, that it leads to healing. And with grief, we have to find ways to move towards our grief in order to produce healing. 
and also the understanding that grief is universal and an individual experience. So that just means that every single one of us um, will experience loss. How we experience it will be different for each one of us, right? We will, some, some of us might, you know, feel anger after a loss and somebody else in our family might be in intense sadness or confusion. And neither of those ways is wrong. They're just different and it can help our clients to understand. I mean, explore what their own unique grief experience is like for them. So grief is not a linear process, which ends in acceptance. And I wish that, you know, we could give our clients a book that said, this is exactly what your grief journey is going to look like. And this is when it ends. And I've been asked that a lot by my clients um, when they're like, how long is this going to be around? And when's it going to get better? And I understand that longing to know, you know, what's coming next, but helping our clients to understand that, that grief um, can be messy at times. It's, you know, it can feel unpredictable. And I settle in on this statement that grief just is, and we can have our clients grasp that. And instead of trying to make it look a certain way or trying to understand, anticipate what it's going to look like tomorrow, what if they land on the thought that grief just is. And if something comes up as part of my grief response, um, I'm going to learn the best way for me of how to feel that, process it, and move it through because I'm trusting that every time I do that, it leads to healing. Another important concept when it comes to grief is the understanding that um, grief is not something that we experience only immediately after a loss. So, you know, society doesn't do a great job of understanding this because, you know, just thinking about when we get bereavement leave is typically, you know, three, maybe five days if we're lucky, uh, immediately following the loss, which is great that we have that, but truly, you know, our grief experience is prolonged and, and it isn't just in the week following the loss. So a lot of helping our clients understand that and then giving them a voice to tell the people around them that I'm still grieving months down the road, years down the road, that, that the grief um, experience still exists. And it, it, when we put it into their court to be able to tell, you know, their coworkers, um, their boss, their friends, their family, that this is just what I'm experiencing in my grief, it is very empowering for our clients to give them a voice when it comes to it. So now we're going to explore trauma. So to me, trauma is when my world has been turned upside down. So something has happened to me that my brain cannot make sense of. And um, by definition, you know, trauma says it's an occurrence where an individual sees or experiences a risk to their own life or physical safety or that of other people and feels terror, fear, or helplessness. There may be confusion, dissociation, a loss of feeling of security. And it, it tests our observance of the world as being a safe place that is just and predictable. And when, when we've experienced something that our brain cannot make sense of, right, it's hard to know where that memory or that experience is going to live. And we can have this sense that our world is no longer a safe place. Trauma is, to me, I've further expanded my definition of trauma as being any past experience that one perceived 
as being negative and continues to negatively impact your current life. So um, it's not just it's not just an event that happened in the past. Trauma is also the imprint of that experience on the mind, the brain, and the body. So you know there are a lot of experiences that we may have gone through that create a trauma experience. Remembering it's where our brain does not know how to make sense of what happened or doesn't have um, a past experience to recall from to say, oh, this is how this plays out. And it shapes the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, or the way that we see our world in a negative way. You know, differentiating between what is known as a big T or capital T trauma versus a little t trauma. So a big T trauma is typically a single incident of traumas. So an example might be a car wreck. You know, a one-time event that happens that causes a trauma response. I, I can't make sense of this. I don't have a past experience to recall from. Little t traumas are experiences that happen repeatedly over time that maybe one of them in and of itself does not cause me to see myself, others, or my world in a negative way, but repeated over time begins to have a negative impact on me. An example might be neglect or abuse. So helping our clients to understand the tip, the difference between the two, um, how they get stored is similar in the brain. We're going to talk about that. So moving into the brain, I'm a big fan of the brain. I think it's fascinating. And, and so much right now of our world is exploring. You know, we have the ability to see the brain in new ways like we've never been able to before. So it's a pretty cool time to be alive. But some of the things that we've been learning about when it comes to trauma in the brain, we're going to explore that today. And I think for me, it's been super helpful to know that when we have unprocessed trauma in our brain, the way that that our brain is connecting to our, you know, the nervous system and the body and the sensations and the emotions, it, our brain act, actually thinks that it is attempting, it's an attempt to keep us alive. It's a strategy to keep us safe. Over long periods of time, that strategy may no longer be working, especially if I am um, no longer in a situation that not safe. So if I'm, you know, a year out from the traumatic experience and, and now I'm in a better place, but my brain continues to detect or is perceived threat, then, you know, my, my brain can't detect the difference between real threat and perceived threat. So it continues to act as if it needs to keep us safe. So helping clients understand that, and we're going to talk later on about some different strategies that help when they start noticing the perceived threat and the sensations that go with it, that as humans, we actually can override our nervous system, which is just fascinating to me and super amazing. And it's very empowering for our clients to learn how to do that. When we talk about the brain, though, this is from, if you have not already read The Body Keeps the Score um, by Bessel van der Kolk, then um, please do, especially if you work often with people who have experienced trauma. It's a, it's a game changer. And a lot of the things that we're talking about and exploring today come from van der Kolk's research and understanding of trauma. But this is just a high-level triune map of the brain. We're going to talk about about the systems. So if 
the bottom of the brain, which is our brain stem, and the brain stem is often called the lizard brain or the reptilian brain. And it's so it's helpful to know that our brain develops from the bottom up. So and the last thing that will develop is the top of our brain. We'll talk about it in, the, in a minute. But from a safety standpoint, it does that to keep us, you know, all of our systems functioning and then to keep us out of threat. So to keep us alive. And then the higher functioning part of our brain is the last to fully form. But our brainstem is responsible for arousal, sleep and wake, hunger, breathing, our chemical balance. It's also the part of our brain that takes care of all of our automatic systems. So, for example, your digestion, your, you know, your, your heart is beating right now because your brainstem is, is activating that. So things that we don't have to think about is, is being activated out of this part of our brain. Now, our limbic system, the limbic part of our brain, this is oftentimes called our mammalian brain or the emotional brain. And it maps a relationship between the person and their surroundings. And highly charged emotions are stored here. Perception operates out of this part of our brain it's the heart of our central nervous system. And one key part of our limbic part of our brain is to, to scan the environment and to look for danger or threat. And when our limbic system detects threat, then it will sound the alarms and say, danger, danger, right? And we'll talk specifically about how that works in a minute. But the purpose is to keep us alive. And what it does is it activates um, an escape plan. And either through fight or flight, it will do whatever it needs to do in order to keep us safe if it perceives a threat. The emotional brain or limbic system jumps to conclusions, unlike our logical part of our brain, which is the more rational part of our brain. And some more intense and visceral sensory input is stored in the emotional brain. And it has less capacity to rationalize the input that's coming in. The prefrontal cortex that sits on top of the brain is our thinking, I often call it our thinking part of our brain. It's um, responsible for problem solving, for planning and anticipation. It has a sense of time and context, so it can um, differentiate between something that happened in the past and something that's going to happen in the future. It actually also has the ability to think into the future and incorporate that in as part of our problem solving. This is why teenagers are often known as being very impulsive because this part of their brain is not fully developed yet, right? They may do something just because it feels good um, or they didn't think about it. I just wanted to. And the, the prefrontal cortex, it, it is thought that it's not fully complete in its development until we hit the age of around 25. So this part of our brain also can inhibit um, inappropriate actions or actions that don't serve us. And are, it's a center of empathy and understanding. So Dr. Siegel, Dan Siegel, is he introduced 
this hand model of the brain and we're not going to have time today to show the video of it, but you can um, look on YouTube for the hand model of the brain by Dr. Siegel. Um, I use this with every single one of my clients and actually use it in my own life daily. Um, When we understand that when we are experiencing something that is life-threatening to us, one of the things that happens is we, as, as Dan Siegel calls it, we flip our lid, which means that the thinking part of our brain goes offline. And this happens for a reason, right? So if a bear were coming at me, I don't want my logical part of my brain to be problem solving in that moment, right? I'm not calculating how far is the bear. No, I want to trust my instincts and move into where my thinking part of my brain's offline and move into a limbic system response, the fight or flight. I want to I want to be operating more out of fight or flight and executing my escape path so that I stay alive. Um, so that part, when when we truly are in the threat, um, having our thinking part of our brain offline is helpful and life-saving for us. The problem happens when we perhaps have had past trauma that got stored and those memories get stored in our limbic system for a reason so that we can protect ourselves from going back into situations that created that um, type of trauma, that trauma experience. So it gets stored into our limbic system and we're scanning the environment, looking for any um, type of potential threat that feels similar to the threat that we experienced in the past. And uh, when we have a perceived threat, and there's a lot of ways that that can happen, it might be images or sights or sounds that feel familiar to the trauma. And this might produce a flashback in your client or um, what is called as limbic looping or amygdala hijack where, you know, even though I might be sitting in my living room and I know there's not imminent threat to me right now, if something feels familiar to that memory that's stored in my limbic system, then remember thinking part of our brain's offline and our amygdala is taken over. That can be really scary for a client because if if the bear were coming at me, I'm going to have a release. Let's say I run super fast or I climb a tree, moving all of that energy through. But when I'm just sitting in my living room, then I'm feeling the sensations of you know all of the systems that are being activated in that moment in order to keep me alive without having the release. So it can be highly activating. When the alarm goes off, so when the amygdala detects a threat, then the survival part of our brain um, gets activated and we shut down our higher brain. And in normal situations, so if I went into my garden and the water hose looked like a snake and I recoil back and, you know, my heart starts racing and it freaks me out for a minute. In a normal state, my thinking part of my brain will be activated because there's two paths to it, right? The shorter path goes to, you know, the amygdala and says, this is a thread snake, but then the longer path gets to my frontal lobe and it says, oh, wait, that's just a water hose. So everything begins to reset and calm back down. For our clients who perhaps have experienced unresolved trauma or large amounts of trauma in their life, their ability to reset after a perceived threat becomes smaller and smaller. It's decreased.
Also, one thing that happens is long after the trauma event, our brain keeps sending signals to escape a threat that no longer exists. We're feeling all of that in our bodies. So the physiological impact of trauma. So some of the things to look for and that can actually be helpful for our clients is to understand that when we perceive a threat, right, or when we have unprocessed trauma stored in our limbic system that we're constantly monitoring for other situations that feel similar to that, then we stay in this hyperarousal state. We can have increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. We might be producing adrenaline and producing, when, when we're in that fight or flight state, we also produce cortisol, um, the stress hormone which uh, the purpose of cortisol is to slow down any systems that um, are not necessary for survival. One of those being digestion. digestion. And um, this is why you may have clients that say, you know, I'm having stomach problems or I, I don't have an appetite. Part of that is due to the cortisol that they're producing in their systems. And when a tiger or bear is coming at me, I'm not needing to process my food from the day before, right? So, their stomach problems or the um, digestive problems that they're experiencing may be due to higher higher levels of cortisol. Stress levels can also cause memory and attention problems, irritability, sleep problems, because it can be hard to be still and, and be present with all of the sensations that our bodies are experiencing when we're in that trauma state. So sometimes the reaction to perceived threat is to ignore the alarms and the body is still producing that stress hormone and reaction. And other survival technique might be to disassociate from the fear and overwhelming feelings. So to, to disconnect from what my body's feeling and, and really detach or, you know, disengage from the present moment, because in the present moment is where all of those sensations live. And when a client is experiencing really intense sensations from that perceived threat. So remember, in essence, something in the past is playing out in the future, then um, they will reorganize their lives around not having having to feel those sensations, you know, trying to protect themselves from experiencing the flashbacks, from fighting unseen dangers. Um, it's very exhausting and it can lead to um, depression and extreme levels of fatigue. So high level understanding of the nervous system, because remember our brain is connected to our nervous system. They work hand in hand. And when, when we can help our clients understand the difference between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, and then also encouraging them to understand their ability to override either one of these systems. We have the ability as humans to do that, which is awesome. The sympathetic nervous system is known as the upregulated part of our nervous system, or often known as the gas pedal. And this part of our brain is activated. So if you're about to go run a race or go to a concert, you, you know, you might feel the sympathetic or maybe you're, you're going on a date, you, you know, the, the feelings that we have in those highly charged emotional state is part of our sympathetic nervous system. But it's also activated when um, we are in that fight or flight hyper aroused state. So helping our clients to begin to understand what does it feel like for me when I'm in a fight or flight or a sympathetic upregulated state. 
they may have increased heart rate, their blood pressure increases, their pupils dilate to take in as much light as possible, which makes sense if I'm in the dark and there truly is a threat. And my hearing is also highly activated and hear sounds, which if I'm staying in this state can help you make sense if you have a client that says, I cannot be in any type of setting where there's large number of people or, or loud noises. And it may just be a sign that they're living in this sympathetic nervous system or hyper aroused state. And their veins constrict in order to send more blood to their muscles in preparation of running super fast or fighting, protecting themselves. Their muscles may be really tense. And um, we've already talked about that non-essential systems stop working, but that are not necessary for survival. They may have, because their thinking part of their brain is offline, they may have a, a hard time focusing on small tasks or concentrating. It, their body is also secreting adrenaline and noradrenaline, which is highly activating rush of hormones. They may have cold, clammy hands, maybe difficult to be still or to sleep. They may feel fidgety um, because they've got all of these changes happening in preparation to fight or flight. The parasympathetic nervous system is often called the break, and it's our down-regulating part of our um, nervous system, and it's activated when we produce a relaxation response. It's also important to know that parasympathetic can be activated in a, in a way that doesn't service or that is not helping us. When I stay in fight or flight too long, then oftentimes my system will kick me down into a parasympathetic. In that state, it's more of a shutdown or collapse state. Or if it feels like fight or flight will not work for me, then, and I don't have the ability to downregulate that hyperaroused state, then I may get kicked into a parasympathetic collapse state where it feels like immobilization complete shutdown it takes a really hard toll on our bodies staying there. But we can utilize our parasympathetic nervous system when we intentionally activate it to produce calming, relax, relaxation, you know, checking into, you know, moving into this more relaxed state. And it can then override that sympathetic nervous system when we intentionally put the brake on. We're going to work with our clients on figuring out what that looks like for them, what works works and what doesn't work. So let's talk about triggers. So trauma triggers are reminders of traumatic events and triggers can be people, places, or things. It might be thoughts, emotions, or sensations. So anything that feels familiar to that trauma memory that is stored in our limbic system can produce a, a trauma trigger. So I, I, a lot of times will have clients that come in and they may say, I don't know what's going on with me, but I'm noticing that I'm highly agitated all the time. I have, you know, or I'm super anxious or nervous and I'm not quite sure why, then normally what I do is begin to explore with them. Has there ever been anything in your past that you can recall that may have happened um, this time of year, right? Because without us even be, being aware of it, you know, let's say 10 years ago, I had an experience, a trauma experience that happened. And the wet, so if it was this time of year when the weather's changing, the daylight's getting less and less, those type of things sit underneath that trauma or get attached to that trauma and are part of the imprint. And without us fully even being aware of it, that unprocessed trauma could be triggered
staggered without us having a story to tell or without us being aware of why. It's important to understand that throughout your day, like even right now, you are storing temporarily information or input into your senses. So if I were to ask you to tell me about the sounds that you're hearing right now, you know, you might hear my voice, you might hear something in your room, that input or that information was already there, you're just recalling it. Or perhaps if I were to ask you, what is one smell that you're smelling in the room that you're in right now, then it's not the input the information isn't coming up at that point in time. It it already existed. You're just recalling it in that moment. When we have a traumatic experience, everything that was temporarily stored in our five senses in that moment gets attached to that trauma memory. And that's how it gets stored. And it's very protective. And the purpose is to keep us safe and to keep us from re-experiencing that that trauma experience. And it's great if we are if we are in a situation where we are continuing to be in, you know, a threat or if it's unsafe and we need we need that part to be activating. We want it to stay stored in our limbic system until and the point in time when we're able to remove ourselves from that experience um, so that we're no longer uh, experiencing the threat on a regular basis. So when we are working with our clients, we're first assessing, are they out of you know, the trauma resp- or the experience that causes the trauma? If not, we're trying to you know, immobilize them to get them out of there. So what, do they need to, what do they need to do to, to make sure that they are safe? But once they maintain safety, then we want to go back in and process the trauma so that it's not stored in that trauma state in the limbic system. It doesn't mean it goes away, but we move through the sensations, the emotions that were attached to that. We allow our clients to tell the story so that it can then be moved into long-term memory. Another part of our brain that is super helpful to understand whenever we are working with our clients is this mohawk of self-awareness. It goes down the center of our brain and it is, it is our ability to be present in this moment with ourselves, our ability to have awareness of ourselves, emotion, you know, body, mind, um, spirit connection. And for somebody who has a history of trauma, then their mohawk of awareness is dark. And that makes sense if you think about, you know, let's talk about a child who grew up in a very chaotic home where there may have been abuse um, or trauma. For them to stay present in that moment, right, would be too overwhelming. So they, this part of their brain actually begins to go dark so that they don't feel the sensations, especially if, if they don't have the ability to change what's going on in, in their home. But what happens is that child becomes an adult who still has this mohawk of awareness of of their own self-awareness that is still dark. And this directly impacts our sense of who we are and our capacity to feel fully alive. So we want to, they learn to shut down the visceral feelings and emotions that come with that sense of terror or helplessness. And we want to find ways that feel um, safe. And it's almost like we're teaching our clients how to 
develop this part of their brain, that that self-awareness, their embodiment of themselves so that they can learn to be fully present, which is where, you know, joy exists and, you know, feelings of well-being exist in this present moment. It's where we feel like we have agency or the ability to control our lives. We don't feel like we're able to be fully present because when I am there, the sensations are too overwhelming. Then our clients will continue in those strategies that are keeping them outside of their bodies. So we want to we want to help them to learn to become to comfortably notice what is going on on the inside. So trauma disrupts a person's internal systems. We just talked about that. They may feel like they are in a constant state of reactivity. And Vanderkolk says that not being fully alive in the present keeps them more firmly imprisoned in the past. So we're wanting to help bring our clients out of that past trauma state so that and heal those places. We'll talk about how to, some different strategies for doing that in a minute, but so that they're able to be present in this moment. And to me, that is our role as clinicians is, is to help facilitate that process in a way that doesn't feel like overwhelm. We never want to move too quickly for our clients or they're, you know, that they're not going to want to come back in. We're trusting them to find ways to be able to manage the sensations, to calm the nervous system down, to downregulate, perhaps for the first time, so that we can then go back in and do the processing work to move that traumatic memory through. So let's talk about how trauma and grief work together. For some clients, their loss has a traumatic component to it. So traumatic grief is a death or loss um, that is sudden, violent, or unexpected. And obviously, their grief experience will be significantly um, impaired. It, um, it impairs their ability to function in daily life over a prolonged time frame. It also disrupts the grieving process. So if I have unresolved trauma or unprocessed trauma, it, then it, we will stay stuck in that treat that trauma response. And when I have trauma, it, it impacts my ability to do the grief, right? Because remember, grief is our reactions and emotions associated to the loss. If every time I think about the experience, I go back into a trauma state that feels like I'm reliving it, then there's no way I can grieve, right? I'm, I'm not in the present because grief happens in the present. My ability to be with those emotions from a present moment, feel them so that I can move them through, right? Every time I take something inside and I get it out, that leads to healing. But trauma keeps us from doing that because when the memory comes up, if it takes me back to re-experiencing it, I, I cannot um, grieve in that moment. I often have people ask, like, is this normal when it comes to grief? And I, I think it's important to allow to help our clients understand that all grief responses are normal, but also understanding that prolonged, unres unresolved, intense grief is I, I kind of struggle with the way this is worded when it says it's not normal. I would probably say there is help and other strategies that will be more beneficial for you than to stay in that and, and can be a sign that there's trauma involved. And so helping our clients navigate, is this a trauma response or a grief response? And sometimes they feel similar, but unpacking that so then we go back, do the trauma work that frees them up to be able to grieve. So what is our goal when it comes to trauma and working with our clients? 
we're, we're wanting to teach them to gain mastery over what's going on inside. And I'm a big proponent of our clients already have the ability within them to, to manage their systems. And as a therapist, I mean, I could sit there and go, I want you to do, you know, A, B, and C this week and give them solutions. But I prefer to work with what's going, what do you already naturally gravitating towards that's been helpful for you? And, and then expanding that because they may not even be aware of it. So our treatment should be focused on helping our clients find a way to get along with their internal systems or learn how to be with those uncomfortable sensations and um, downregulate them, right? Bring a calming relaxation experience. The clients must learn to tolerate what they are feeling and experiencing within their body. The goal is to live fully and securely in the present. To change the way the body has learned to react due to trauma, we must create different experiences where the body learns to track in a new way. And we must find a way for the body to know that the danger has passed. So we're teaching them, right, in a way that that works with what they're already naturally gravitating towards, how to stay, you know, in this window of tolerance where they may upregulate some and then they downregulate it and they stay, they don't get outside of the window of tolerance when a threat doesn't exist and just learning how to navigate that for themselves. So we're looking within them what works for them, what ways are they naturally downregulating, what ways are they upregulating. When our clients are in a hyper aroused state or that fight or flight, we're always looking for ways to downregulate. When they're in that immobilized state or shut down, detached state, then we're looking at ways to bring about movement, right? What what is one what is one small thing that you can do that produces movement so that we can upregulate um, the nervous system in that state. So I have found that, especially in um, different trauma reactions, it, it's typically not going to be a, bot- a top-down approach where we're talking about it, but we're wanting to activate more bottom-up approaches that reset the automatic nervous system. Breath, when a client can understand that their nervous system takes its cues off of the inhale and the exhale. So if I'm in that fight or flight state, I have short, shallow breathing. And by getting my exhale a little bit longer, then my nervous system will begin to respond and it moves into the parasympathetic nervous system. We're needing to get the exhale a little bit longer than the inhale. There's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. And I, you know, track with my clients to see if breathing is, is activating for them or if I ask them to notice their breath that feels really uncomfortable, then I'm not going to have them focus on it. But maybe I start changing my breath or I pace with them and then I begin to slow my breathing down just a little bit. Or I ask them, you know, how what is one way that you can get your exhale just a little bit longer? It doesn't have to be, now you're going to exhale at eight. That can be very triggering for some clients. So just getting them to understand that they have the ability to override their nervous Nervous system and the exhales, how we get out of hyper aroused. If we're needing to upregulate, then we're moving into something that is more, we're wanting to activate their inhale. So it might be having them move, right? Maybe it's having them stand up. Maybe they do jumping jacks, you know, having them explore what are some things that they naturally gravitate towards when they did get out of bed that day. What did that look like for them? And then touch is a great approach. You know, I just observe my clients, maybe they've got their hands. Or they're touching their face. I normally have something in my hand all the time that's very grounding for me. And um, so we are, you know, just 
looking and asking them for ways they may wrap up in a blanket, right? Maybe their dogs are that sense of touch that keeps them grounded and in present moment. So mindfulness, I know it's most people are talking about this, but when it comes to trauma, we're wanting to learn how to calmly and objectively hover over our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Instead of being reactive, we want to become more responsive. So mindfulness to me, when I'm working with my clients, is we're just learning to kind of track with where we are right now. Just noticing without feeling like we need to change it, which can be extremely helpful in being present with what's going on inside. So some helpful strategies, we've already talked about deep breathing, mindfulness meditation, anything that grounds them, gets them back into the present moment. Yoga is so great because it incorporates breath with movement and tapping is a great strategy. I, I love the tapping solution app and I recommend it to all of my clients. Monitoring their heart rate variability, our, our watches and those apps that help us to do this because when we move into that slow, steady breathing, then our heart rate variability percentage begins to increase. And it's, it's biofeedback, it's real-time feedback to say, wow, when I do slow my breathing down, I'm able to increase that heart rate variability. And there's a lot of, you, know, you can have your clients look up different statistics of what happens when we have that higher um, heart rate variability percentage. So if you are a therapist and you're wondering what strategies to utilize when um, working with your clients, these are some of the ones that I personally have found to be beneficial. I'm an EMDR therapist. Uh, I use EMDR in conjunction with internal family systems. And I wish today I could explore um, each one of these in depth for sake of time. I'm just going to mention them and have you go out and explore some of these and see which ones fit for you, which ones you might be interested in looking into further. Polyvagal theory, um, Stephen Porges's theory is great, talks about the window of tolerance and nervous system, emotional freedom technique tapping, talked about somatic experiencing or SE body work is a great tool and also neurofeedback. So I did want to go through briefly, if you have a client who really is struggling with their grief and the trauma aspect of grief, then the Grief Center is a great resource. They have therapists who are trained in trauma and knowing how to not only deal with the trauma component of it, but also the grief side of your client's experience. So it may be appropriate to refer them or have them go to a group. So we're going to open up now for a time of Q&A. So thank you. And I look forward to um, being a part of the Q&A. Well, thank you, Joanna. What great information and very well presented. I like the way you put the combined grief and trauma. I haven't, I've not seen that done before. And that was really helpful. What do you look for to know someone's going through the normal process of grief or that it has become more than that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I briefly discussed this in the presentation. Um, I, I think it's, you know, really common for our clients to come in and say, you know, how long is this going to last? And is it normal what I'm experiencing? Part of that is because, you know, when we experience a loss, it, it is something new to us. And we don't have, you know, a history to recall from to say, oh, this is how it works. This is the resolution. And 
you know, especially since each loss is different. So, um, you know, I, I think in the presentation, we covered a lot of different examples of what to look for if there's trauma involved, if they're actually stuck in a trauma reaction. Hopefully that has been helpful to answer that question. But, you know, I really, I, I will stand on what I said in the presentation that um, helping our clients understand that grief just is. I Here's the question that I ask my clients. Um, at what point in time um, might this be, turn into something that is um, no longer serving you or helping you or is causing you more harm? And um, if they don't know that, then I might encourage them to ask the people in their, life, in their lives that they do trust and that feel safe to help answer that question. Because I don't know, right? Is, is this thing that they're doing um, unhealthy or is it normal? So I just start asking questions about it and exploring it with them. Okay, great. Um, well, the next question is uh, another good one. Does resilience in an individual affect the recovery from grief? Can the brain recover quicker with mindfulness or other techniques? So kind of two questions in one. Does yeah. resilience in an individual affect the recovery from grief? Yeah, so um, with resilience, the concept of um, post-traumatic growth is you know, it's an interesting one. Go Google it if you're not familiar with it. But I, I think that, um, you know, we're wanting to move our clients into a state where um, they they are able to fully embrace their grief and, you know, experience it, move towards it and, um, you know, decide for themselves how to be intentional with their grief. And to me, there's a sense of strength that comes with that. There's healing that comes with it. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of studies out there that speak to resilience and there's a lot of unknowns around why why is some person more resilient than another person um you know i i think watching you know talking about the things that we explored from a trauma state and understanding that trauma can definitely impact our ability to grieve um so there may be some trauma around that is impacting you know an individual's resilience the second part remind me again what it was it was about mindfulness. Can the brain recover quicker with mindfulness or other techniques? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I feel like that one was covered in the presentation as well. I mean, it, the abil ability to observe um, and hover and um, just notice without judgment. Um, we, we know from, um, you know, there's <laughs> healing that happens in our brain as we do that. It actually makes connections. It connects our right brain to our left brain, the top of our brain to the bottom of our brain. And um, mindfulness is the key to healing. Yeah. Do you find that many people who have unresolved trauma are more likely to shut down or block during a time of grief? Mm. I think it depends um, on the early strategies that they took on growing up. So if um, if their strategy was to um, you know stay in that hyper aroused state, the fight or flight, and then create strategies around that, um, then they may be more apt to when they have a loss in their adult life um, to borrow or to go right back to those same strategies that they learned to do um, 
early on growing up. If, if their strategies um, when they were little were too shut down to numb, to detach, um, then again, that, I think that's where they naturally gravitate towards. Um, but I, you know, for most of us, uh, especially when there's trauma involved, we're doing a combination of both of those. You know, we're jumping either, normally we go to the fight or flight first. And if it feels like that um, reactivity won't work for us, I don't have a way out or I, I can't escape or I can't fight or I've stayed there too long, then our systems will kick us down into that hypo aroused state, that shutdown. You know, part of it is preservation. And part of it is because it feels like it's the only way to survive. So the key is just noticing what does that feel like in my body when I'm outside of window of tolerance and hyper aroused state? What does it feel like when I'm in hypo aroused state? And then implementing the strategies to get back into window of tolerance. Um, how would you address multiple deaths in a year in a transitional housing setting? Hmm. Man, that, you know, anybody that experiences multiple traumas in one year, uh, you know, first of all, I think it's just an awareness of um, the need to to live in that protective stance, that survival stance, um, honoring that and how important it might be to be there for a while, um, supporting them in that um, in that state not rushing them too soon. You know, when we think about somebody who experiences multiple traumatic um, experiences in short period of time, then, um, you know, to move them out of that too quick can be highly activating and can feel paralyzing and overwhelming, flooding. We don't want to do that with our clients. It is supporting them, helping them, um, their needs, basic needs, making sure that they're getting met. It may not be until, you know, long down the road that they're able to even begin to unpack the trauma associated to the loss, especially if somebody's, you know, living in temporary housing where it, you know, may not feel um, like they have their own space or the world's kind of turned upside down. A lot of the strategies will be around survival during that time frame and supporting them in that. So does grief have a timeline and when does it become more than grief? Yeah, um, it, it, the answer to that question is no, there is no timeline. And um, I think I put in the notes on there that really the level of, you know, of grief, how long and how intense we experience our grief journey is dependent on the significance of the relationship to the person or thing that we lost. And, um, you know, there there is no timeline associated to that. I think it's freeing to help our clients know that. And that, you know, go back to that grief just is, our job is not to know when is this going to end, which is an understandable question. I, I get why they're asking that, but to teach them how to manage the intensity of um, their experience and find ways. It may be that they're living in the grief too much and they need to have a break from it and move more into self-care and down-regulating um, strategies and that we may shift into that focus that helps them. Um, so, you know, when a client comes in asking those questions and I'm always, you know, curiosity pondering, I wonder what's behind this, I wonder what's underneath it. And then we move in to um, the motivation um, and, and provide help in that way.